Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Today's visitor to the island first became known to us as the lead singer with Horse Lips before pursuing a very successful career as a writer-producer in TV and film. It's a pleasure to welcome Barry Devlin. Barry, growing up in Ardbow, County Tyrone, you, you seemed to be surrounded by women, from what I read. I was. Uh, it, that sounds better than it actually. <laughs> yeah, it's an impressive <laughs> I, line. I, yeah. I had six sisters. <laughs> and, and, and the single salient thing about my six sisters was that they were all much smarter than me. Mm. They had my number from day one. There were four of them were older than me, two of them were younger than me. And there's, a, there's an assumption that I was spoiled rotten, but I wasn't entirely. They were very kind to me. But they were they were well, feminist, you know. There was none of this get get the get the dinner for your for for your brother there. Uh, but yeah, no, it was like, you know I I grew up in an absolute idyll, you know. I was my the the place I Arbo is on Loch Ney, mm. and so my father had, was a fish merchant, and we had a farm when when I was younger. We had horses and we we had mixed farming. I remember growing grass seed and kale and obviously potatoes, wheat, barley, and above all, flax. And flax was flax was a desperate crop to harvest because it had to be pulled, and flax was full of thistles. And so the guys who pulled the flax used to come in, you know, looking like I don't know, like Bigfoot. They were covered <laughs> in wets and wheels, and uh, mm. you know, you'd bring in the hay. It does sounds like a, a, a niddle, and it was. I mean, we bring in the hay to the haggard, and then you'd run down four fields and you'd dive into Loch Ness, which was shallow and warm. It was wonderful. It was a. Gr- I had a very lucky childhood. People always remember the good days of yeah. childhood, don't they? And- yeah. There's, I remember uh, W. H. Auden asked about you know what makes a great creative writer, and this is where I fall right down. Mm. And he he described it as much angst as the child can take, <laughs> and I had I had no angst. Mm. I mean, I genuinely had angst. For, I mean, I, everybody gets a bit angsty later on, and I, I God knows I had enough mm. in my teenage years. But for the you know the eleven or twelve years while I was still not at secondary school, Arbo was like I was astonishing. It was amazing. You you wrote um, a very successful. Program, my mother and other strangers, BBC series. It was based around an airfield. I didn't. There was a, a US airfield, was there in Ardbow? Huge one, one of the biggest. It was actually planned before the Second World War by the Americans who want who needed to felt they might need to bomb Germany. So yes, it was built. It started building it in nineteen forties. Uh, I think it was Station Three Two Eight, and it had four thousand GIs wow. on it. Uh, and a lot of them came, well, not all of them, but a lot of them came down and drank in my father's pub. So he had, those are, you know, like the German U-boats, those were the happy days <laughs> when, when. and so I'd see uh, GIs uh, all the time. And uh, I, and then it, it was turned over, well, that's a lie. I didn't see the GIs. It was yeah. turned over to the RAF in 1951 or 52, at which point I became cognizant of all yeah. these guys in blue uniforms. I'm an aeroplane lunatic. You know, I love aeroplanes. And I presume it came from that period, although I was quite scared of them at the time. But you'd be walking home from school and there'd be these, there were apprentices that were called, these 
three-seater British training planes. They had mm. a very distinctive fluttering noise in their engines. And you'd see the two um, trainee pilots and the pilot. And I remember seeing, and it was clear, I remember seeing a guy who'd fainted over the controls in the front. Oh my God. Uh, and the, the guy behind was bringing him in. But this guy was, they, they were that close. You could actually, you know, they, were, they, they went straight just over the, the Campbell's Hedge. And in onto the onto the main runway, so it was it was this extraordinary combination of of a place that was as you know Arbo is a million miles from anywhere, mm-hmm. and it's a place no one ever goes through Arbo because if you go through Arbo you run into Loch Ness, the soft plop of cars disappearing <laughs> into the waters of a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Your first musical choice is is. Is it from that era? It's bizarre, isn't it? Really, <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it, my it, it's from yeah, it's from nineteen fifty two, and that was the first record I remember. Uh, and one of the reasons I remember it, there, there weren't that many uh, outlets for popular music. You yeah. know, there was the the, the light program. And there was Athlone, uh, the the sponsored programs, and we just uh, it's an interesting thing. We were a, kind of a middle class Catholic family, yeah. uh, and so we tended to listen to the light program. And I grew up thinking, reading Eagle, and thinking I was a schoolboy in in St Paul's <laughs> in Kensington, you know, down there. And but when the flax was being pulled and everybody was in for dinner, they'd go, because which was in the middle of the day, yeah. uh, they'd all go, put on Athlone there, hey, boy, do we hear what's actually happening? <laughs> and Athlone was where, for our bow, Athlone was where the news came from. And then on the light programme was essentially propaganda. Yeah. Um, so, but you would, so you'd, you'd hear a lot of kind of American stuff by the likes of Slim Whitman and a, you know, Bell Bell, My Liberty Bell, songs like that, yeah. you know. Uh, and uh, the reason I think I know that uh, China Doll was so ingrained in my consciousness from then is radio sets weren't that good and there weren't that many of them. Mm-hmm. And Slim Whitman has a voice that carries a very long distance. You could cut steel with Slim's <laughs> voice. So if if the radio was on and Slim was on it, you could hear two parishes away. And I think that's why I... I also like the song. I like the idea of it being a China doll. He'd get a hashtag for it these days. <laughs> but but back then, China doll was the... That was the one for me. That's where it all started. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's China Doll from Slim Whitman, the choice of today's guest, screenwriter and musician Barry Devlin. So when you left Arbo, where did you head for? I went to college in Pats Armagh. I was mm. a boarder in Pats Armagh and a, a long Tom McGurk. Uh, was in the same class. Was he? Yeah, I mean, St. Columns Derry... You were obviously in the B class. St. <laughs> Columns Derry produced nine, nine Nobel Prize winners and, and St. Pat's produced myself and McGurk. So, you know, I, you know, I rest my case. But so I went to Pat's Arma and then I had a bizarre uh, Damascene conversion, I suppose. And I went to uh, the Maynooth Mission to China for four years um, as a seminarian. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, the Maynooth Mission to China wasn't in Maynooth and it didn't go to China. It was in Navan and it went to the Philippines. And, yeah. uh, to, and I had some notion of muscular Christianity. I had a notion of building shanty towns, you know. It seemed like a good thing to be at. If you saw me putting up a shelf, you'd know that that the shanty towns of Lima, Peru dodged a bullet in, yeah. in my building skills. I, I read an interview, Barry, where um, was it Polly, one of your sisters, really didn't want you to go into the church and, and try to... 
Oh yeah, Drive she like like Jesus being led up onto the roof and shown the world. She, I was going into the seminary in September at sixty four, and she brought me over to London. It was fair dues to her in uh, May nineteen sixty four, and I went to the I went to a hard day's night in in the Leicester Square cinema, you know, and yeah. it just opened, and she brought me around all. all the, all these wonderful places in London. And she was sharing a flat with three, like Chrissy Shrimpton and Maggie Stone, these right, extraordinary yeah. looking girls. And I still went into the seminary. There's something <laughs> wrong with me. <laughs> but she she kind of wanted you to see life a bit, was oh, that yeah. it? Yeah. And I mean, she, Polly's always been, Polly's an extraordinary person. Yeah. She's always been good like that. She, she uh, I mean, to be fair to my sisters, they ribbed me merciless. And my mother liked the idea that I was going to be a priest. My dad hated it. And my sister just laughed a lot. Uh, that wasn't what took me out, yeah. but I mean, they didn't, you know, how are you this morning, Priestine? Was <laughs> a regular greeting over the over the cornflakes in the summer. Yeah. So yeah, so and I so I was in there for, and I went to UCD to do my uh, degree, my philosophy yeah. degree. Went back for First Divinity, and by that point, I'd kind of figured that I wasn't sure there was anybody in the porta cabin. With regret, because I had enjoyed it, and yeah. I loved the guy. Still, stay in touch with the guys in Dalgan. I thought they were a bunch of extraordinarily decent men. And and the music. Were you playing music at that stage? I I had started off. You know, it was a it was a desperate break for me because I I discovered the Beatles, and all I ever wanted to do was be a Beatle. And then I and then I went into the seminary. Much mm. again, you know, that yeah. was the hardest thing. You, you couldn't. I, I missed out on five or six Beatle releases <laughs> because I was in. And we'd 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 a year of a lot of silence and all that stuff. Oh, had that. you? Yeah. yeah, the first year in Probo year, well, there were there was there was a lot of silence and there were no radios and all that stuff. So you know, I missed out on about the third and fourth, fifth and sixth Beatle singles, uh, which which I didn't like. It and was, you had no problem coping with that. It's a big change in life, obviously, to go into the no, silence. No, I, 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 my wife will will yeah. explain to you. I'm a natural celibate, <laughs> and I didn't have any problem with any of that. No, I quite liked it. You know, and in some ways, I'm institutionalizable. I, you know, I I can function in hospitals. Lockdown worked great for me. Because, you know, I was doing what I was told and I was getting four meals a day. It's, it's uh, you know. Uh, your second musical choice is the Beatles. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I, uh, the three choices that I made for this, yeah. I won't tell what the third one is. I discovered after I made them uh, that they're 10 years apart. So this is October, November 62. And I was, as I quite often was, in the sick bay in Patsarma. I was, you know, I was feigning illness. And Tom McGurk, for it is he, <laughs> had lent me his transistor radio very kindly. And I, I had it pressed to my ear in, in the sick bay. And Love Me Do came on. And, you know, it's uh, genuinely nothing was ever the same again. Everything that I ever did since has has really revolved around that that harmonica and that for, those first few beats. Yeah. Uh, it just did for me I kind of up to then I'd been you know I'd, I'd been interested in pop and but if you think that what what was what was there before Love Me Do it was you know Venus in Blue Jeans by Mark Winter and you know a lot of Dion and Bobby V and it, it wasn't going to hit anybody over the head and well you know if if you analyze Love Me Do it's a very ordinary it's a 4-4 song with with infantile lyrics yeah. in many ways but it doesn't sound like anything that came before it you know and and it just, it was, you know, the look of them, you know, I'm completely in love with them, yeah. uh, they, you know, and, you know, it, it, you know, they were built for black and white. Uh, if you if you yeah. look at the Ed Sullivan show or if you yeah, look at yeah. any of those things, just that how they looked in those, the, these little guys in these little suits, you know, they were, 
I, I still get I still get all flustered when, nice, I, yeah. when I look back there. Let's let's hear them then. The Beatles and Love Me Do. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio One. That's the Beatle, the choice of today's guest, Barry Devlin. Um, so the influence of the Beatles, were you playing guitar now at this stage? Or? No, I hadn't. I still hadn't. Oddly enough, I then, I, really, the hardest thing to do in going into the seminary, which I believed I should do, yeah. uh, was leaving behind pop music. What I mm. And so when I came out in 1968, uh, late 68, it was still in full flow, you know. It was the summer of love was just over, uh, and swinging sixties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so so it was kind of. I I came out in a I, and I went back into UCD to uh, do my MA, and it was interesting. We we practiced a thing called custodia oculorum as seminarians, although I believe the All Hallows boys didn't quite, but the Columbans did, which meant you didn't look at girls. So I went back into a year full of girls I'd really never seen before, which was terrific. That was great fun. <laughs> and I, I mean, you know, I was still hopeless. I was I was 21 or 22 yeah. and I'd never... Awkward, even, were you? Never thought of kissing a girl. So nobody knew what to make. I mean, most of them didn't bother making any of me anyway. And uh, so I finished UCD and where I met Jim Lockhart. And we, you know, it was funny how I met Jim. Uh, Jim was sent down during the SDA uh, occupation Students for Democratic Action. Uh, he was sent down to proselytize. We had a locker room where all the all the priests from All Hallows and All Hallows and all the, put their bikes and changed out of their funny suits. And Jim came down and and kind of read us the riot act about joining in. And I remember I was very taken. I thought he was great, but I went up to him afterwards and I said, "I'm interested in what you're saying there. Have you read Homage to Catalonia, which is the George Orwell book about the Spanish Civil War?" And he went. No. And I went, well, you should. And, of course, I hadn't read it either. <laughs> it was an unfair mm. blow. But we, 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 became, we became firm friends. And uh, so when I left UCD, I joined uh, ARCS Advertising. And the, I, I, had, I had started to play the guitar at that point. Uh, I started to play the guitar, I think, in my final year in, in uh, Dalgan, which probably hastened my exit from, yes, yes. from you know, I'm a, Guitar but but, but but Jim and you were the founders then of Horses. Horses came from that meeting. Well, we we did. We, in fact, what Jim and I were doing was we were writing really bad scripts in Jim's dad's and mum's house in James's Street. So we'd go up on a Sunday and you know at the weekends, yeah. uh, and we'd be in the front room writing really really bad scripts. And Jim's dad would drop us in. Theatre or for. TV, TV or for TV. RTE, yeah, yeah. RTE, and there were—I mean, oh God, they were so they were juvenile beyond words. But we thought they were great. Yeah. And Jim's dad would drop us in a packet of After Eights. Always, you know, we get through yeah. them, and at the end of it, we'd go, "This is great." All written out in longhand, yeah. and really not very good at all. But we, but we listened to a lot of music at the same time. So you know, we're, we're listening to a lot of uh, fusion music because that was what was yeah. going on at the time, yeah. and. I then got a job. Jim was a year behind me in, in college, so he went on to do his Emmy and I joined ARCS, where I met Charles O'Connor and Eamon Carr. Yeah. And that was the, the beginning of horse lips as a, you know, as a, oh, this could work. And our, our, we got a lead guitarist who was in there as well. He just died, uh, Spud Murphy, who then went, who went on to become a very famous yeah. photographer. We had a latent group in, in uh, ARCS 
And uh, it, and that was the best probably we ever were because, you know, all groups are the very best just after they form. Because, uh, you know, a group's trajectory or progress isn't, it's funnel-shaped. It, what you do is you eliminate all the stuff you could have been right. and become the thing that you are and eventually the travesty of the yeah. thing you are, like what's happened to the Stones, yeah. you know. Um, so for that year, 1970-71, we were, you know, the greatest garage band in the world and we knew we could do anything. But you did, I mean, you you did go on to have massive success in the 70s. We did. It was very fast. I mean, it was, you know, I remember... <laughs> I remember going home on the train in 1970 uh, with a copy of the new Spotlight and on Pat Egan's page, in the middle of it, there was a tiny little photo of us, our mm-hmm. first ever photograph, and I left it open the whole way home in case somebody <laughs> would come by and go, oh, who are they? <laughs> that's, yeah. you know, that's, that's the, and, yeah. and, you know, that was, in many ways, that was, you, you kind of couldn't believe it was going to, and it happened very fast, yeah. yeah. Between, we went on television in 1971 doing Found, uh, thanks to Anya O'Connor, who, the late, great yeah. Anya O'Connor, who really started everybody's yeah. career. And by 1972, we were doing The Town and Jerry Doom was out, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, it was like, it was great. It was mad stuff. We brought in the Stones uh, uh, recording truck, you know, straight from Deep Purple's session in Montreux. And yeah. all the papers sent their guys down to uh, Longfield House where we were holding court. Some of the reporters never went back to the papers as far as I know. They're still, they're still wandering around casual. <laughs> but, so was, was this suddenly the, the rock and roll lifestyle then? Yeah. Was it really? <laughs> it was. It's a mad transition for you. Wasn't it, it went from yeah, it went from from not to sixty. Now it was you know it should be, we were never big enough internationally. We had we had a we had a proper career. We had a proper yeah, yeah. career in America and Britain. Uh, we would have been top of the second division. We weren't a first division yeah. band, uh, and it was wonderful. I mean, and we were also very lucky in that our record companies were were always pretty serious about it. We were the third band to sign for Atlantic, The Stones. Wow. Led Zeppelin and Horse Lips. You're joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, Tom Dowd wanted to produce this and all that stuff. And it was for a huge amount of money. Now, it was for a huge amount of money, most of which came on the last four albums, which we, yeah. Atlantic yeah. fired us after two. <laughs> uh, but they, we were then with RCA and we were with uh, Polygram. And so we tended to, uh, on all the, like on the American, uh, when you'd be going out doing press before you mm. did your tour, that was all flown. And it was, you know, the, they had limos for us and all that stuff. We were, well, I, I remember when Aliens came out and, and they put up Sunset Strip and had billboards at that stage for everybody. Mm. And we had this enormous billboard with a big Celtic warrior with a big axe. We, we, we got a limo and drove up and down uh, <laughs> shouting at the hookers, that's us up there, and them going out of Tanners. You know, it was, but it was, it was 10, it was fantastic. We just had, we laughed, and we were, we were great touring companions, you know, Eamon, Charles, Johnny, Jimmy, me. When it all ended, did it, it ended kind of maybe to us suddenly or? Yes, it, yeah. our last year together was, you know, we'd been we had been genuinely deliriously happy, and we began to have huge musical differences. Uh, our old friend music, punk, mm. had arrived, and every band was trying to analyse what they were, and you know, mm. what, what were, were we really boring old farts? And I think we probably took it more seriously than many. We were also a bit worn out. Uh, we we were doing two hundred gigs a year. We wow. had we had a situation where uh, we paid for our own albums and licensed them. 
We were a genuinely independent record company, Oats Records and then Horselips Records. We did our own packaging, we did our own design. We paid for our own recordings and licensed them to mm. Atlantic and RCA and all that stuff. Charles was the sleeve designer and did it, you know, all that yeah. stuff. So, and we had... They were famous covers, weren't they, in fairness? Very yeah, famous. Yeah, you yeah, know, they really yeah. were. And we had our own, we had a, we had a, we had a funky fun club, yeah. you know, and I uh, still, the most extraordinary people, leaders of society <laughs> come up to me and show that they were number 329. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I'm I'm proud of I'm proud of pretty much. I mean, I yeah. wrote as much doggerel as I needed, yeah. you know. But I also wrote a couple of good songs, and so there are there are a few good songs in the canon. Uh, and I think we did something, you know, and it's oh, uh, it's it's still out there, you know. And your 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 final song oh, illustrates that point in well, many does, ways. Indeed, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone this everyone knew this, you yeah. know. And there was a and, whole generation after. We were the kind of the groove armada in, in the sense that everybody knew, I, I hear you, I, I see your baby shaking that ass, but weren't sure who did it. Yeah. A whole generation of kids knew, dan, 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 but weren't yeah. sure who did it. So, so in the, you know, the 90 thing really uh, gave it a new lease of life. And then we came back after the 29-year fag break in 2009, and it was, you know, it was back to, to we'd never played to as big an audience as the one we did in... In uh, as as you know as as uh, headliners, it's yeah. the one we did in in the O2, and that was lovely as well. And my kids got to see it uh, because they, you know, everybody knows this story. But you know, they they the horse ups had stopped, and I was doing yeah. the next thing. I was yeah. doing all the YouTube videos and all that stuff. And so the kids would occasionally come on, you know, pictures that you've really been many ways to just go, what was Daddy thinking of, yeah. you know? I wonder, was he, was that, was that how he went out? Uh, and then it made good sense when they saw it, when they saw it live, you know, and they've, you know, they've come to a lot of gigs ever since. They, that, that mini tour, we did Belfast and Dublin and a couple of, a couple of other, Killarney and, and uh, there were limos and things on it because De- Dennis Desmond was always very good to us in that way. And we 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 really didn't use them, but the kids did, and they were <laughs> disgraceful. I mean, there was there was curries being ordered up to six o'clock in the morning in in all the hotels. You know, it's great. It's a great memory to have. Oh yeah, it's wonderful. It was a way of paying them back for being good kids. Yeah, well, it's a nice way to do. It. Look, we've only we've only taken a glimpse at, at your career, but. Uh, this is the perfect way to end it. I mean, the iconic Derek Doom from Horses. Barry Devlin, thanks a million for chatting with us. Thanks, Des. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.